Hello, my name's Adam Spring, and this is a Remotely Interested podcast, hosted at remotely-interested.com. My guest for this episode is Larry Kleinkemper. Larry and his wife have a company called Landmark Services out of Austin, Texas, and they work a lot with uh, an idea known as BIM, Building Information Modeling. Now, as Larry says in the interview, BIM is all about databases, and it's very interesting to go through several things with him. I think the key takeaways from this revolve around 3D imaging, GIS, BIM, and how digital technologies are creating a multidisciplinary environment. Uh, A byproduct of this as well is something I would call the you-know-drinking game. Throughout the interview, Larry and I end up basically saying you know quite a bit. He starts it and then I start feeding off of it and it's quite funny to listen to actually. Anyway, I'd like to thank Larry for his time now. I'll probably thank him again at the end of the interview. And also at the end of this podcast, there will be an Easter egg. So do listen along to what Larry has to say and listen to the end to listen what he might say at the end as well. If Doctor Who isn't enough for you, Cardiff Wales has another claim to fame. It's the home of Aeon Technology Limited. That's a-eon.biz. Aeon Technology is creating Amiga One computers. And around that, they are also developing out softwares like ImageFX, Personal Paint, Octomed. They also have Amistore.net, which is their developer platform. Anyway, if you're interested in any kind of computing, and particularly Amiga-based computing, go over to a-eon.biz. That's a-eon.biz. pvpubs.co.uk It's more than a catchy website name. It's the home of Geomatics World and GIS Professional. If you have any geospatial needs or any interest in the geospatial industry, why not go over to pvpubs.co.uk and why don't you reach out to them if you're interested in advertising with them or wanting to put an article in one of their publications. Anyway, that's pvpubs.co.uk. Hello, sticker lovers. Why don't you head over to stickerrobot.com? That's sticker with one R, obot with no R, dot com. They can also basically print out any forms of stickers that you want. Die cut stickers, clear stickers, business card stickers, round stickers, any kind of stickers you want. Go over to stickerrobot.com. So Larry, tell me a little bit more about what you do. Landmar Services is our company and... um we uh, run around North America scanning buildings and turning them into computer models that architects and engineers can use for doing major renovations, additions, historic preservation. So how did you get into what you do? Because it sounds as though you're coming at it from a very specialist angle. So I'm assuming, you know, the computing equipment you must have is custom built. And, you know, the softwares that you use must take a long time to learn. Yeah, it's, you know... Um, My first love in life was architecture. Um, I wanted to be an architect from a very early age, and uh, uh, I went to school and achieved that goal. And then, um, but one of the things that I had latched on to in my early studies was I seemed to have a knack for computer modeling. And uh, so, you know, from the 90s to the early 2000s, I was, you know, the viz guy. I was the guy who did a lot of rendering and animation and real-time stuff, um, presentations to win giant buildings. And then um, uh, at some point, scanning entered my life around 2007. And uh, when I got the opportunity to go out and scan, uh, do a 3D scan of the Rose Bowl in Pasadena. And um, from there, it just 
uh, overtook my life. I mean, uh, the whole 3D scanning industry um, and combining that to, you know, get a picture, a real um, technical picture of what's going on with buildings uh, and making that information useful. And so um, that's, that's what I do. Okay. Now, I suppose the thing I would pick out immediately would be, so tell me more or tell the audience more about 3D scanning and sort of the concept behind it. Yeah, so, um, you know, a little bit of the, the history of what's going on and how we've, you know, uh, used it. So probably the more traditional thing that people think of is time of flight. And uh, LIDAR is a term that they may have heard, uh, which stands for light detection and ranging. Um, time of flight, it's, you know, actually all the technologies are essentially for scanning is it's shooting out a pulse of light and timing how long it takes to get from a scanner to a surface. And, um, and it's a really cool technology that gives us um, a high level of detail of information um, of surfaces and, and uh, parts of buildings. So what would you have been using prior to laser scanning? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, um, years and years and years of running around with cameras and a tape measure and, you know, 11 by 17 pads of paper and, uh, uh, you know, making hand drawings on site. And, you know, uh, that was a certain level of efficiency that's been around for a millennia just about. Um, but uh, one of the things, there was two problems with it. One was uh, you inevitably always miss something right behind you. Um, you know, it's you get whatever's right in front of you and, and then you'd miss something critical and you'd have to travel back to the job site. And at this time we're working, you know, over the entire North America continent. So uh, to have to go back and travel across the country or across the continent, uh, that's expensive. And doing it with cameras and a tape measure, it would you would count on it taking a minimum of two times, and it would often take much more than that in order to get all the detail you needed. And then there was a lot of things that were either dangerous to touch, to measure, like electrical stuff, or simply out of reach, you know, way up high on a ceiling or someplace where it was hard to get to. And um, and so, you know, 3D scanning has really, really just improved the whole process of our profession as far as documenting what's there. And I think that's interesting because I'm assuming that basically this, on a broader scale in terms of the 3D image, it sounds as though essentially what you're doing is you're able to take the physical object away with you as opposed to be grounded by the physical object. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, for uh, documenting as-built buildings, you know, uh, one of the things I love to joke around and say is that, uh, you know, anytime somebody hires me to document a building, I often ask them first to send the building to me. But as it turns out, numbering the bricks and everything is too complicated. So they just end up, I have to go there. And so it ends up being a lot of travel for me. Um, because there's only so many giant buildings in any one town. And 
the the other thing that's interesting about it is how over recent time, you know, at the beginning in 2007 through 2010, the technology was so expensive that it was only giant buildings or very sort of star architecture. It was, you know, it was star buildings that had no real budget and that they were so important that it didn't matter what the cost was necessarily. It was going to get done. From 2010 to 2012, the uh, process started to take form and become somewhat efficient and economical. And then from 2012 to current day, it really, now it's getting down into the smaller and smaller buildings um, and is, I don't think it's quite reached residential unless you have a, quite the villa, but um, it's, you know, it's gotten down to pretty small commercial buildings as far as being the fast, fastest, most economical, most efficient way of getting the job done. Okay. And in terms of, you know, buildings and cityscapes, and I guess what you would call more broadly, you know, infrastructure and asset management, how has the benefit to take what I guess you would call the as-built changed your perception of the pre-existing stuff that was there? Because I, I can imagine you're seeing every sort of floral quirk that's yeah. now there that, you know, isn't necessarily what was on the yeah. page when they were designing it. So, yeah, tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, it, I mean... Oh, my goodness. Uh, you know, we do have a country that is uh, in constant state of decay. And uh, so when you start hearing about, you know, more and more railway derailments and, uh, and bridges collapsing and things along those lines, this is where scanning technology, 3D scanning technology is really starting to come in and, and get used full force in order to try to hedge off those sort of, you know, catastrophic issues. So um, all the rail lines now want to run a 3D scanner often, not just one pass, but on a regular basis through uh, to check to see for warpage and, and for, you know, uh, things coming out of tolerance. And uh, with our bridge work, we've, you know, um, trying to, to help out on things like um, uh, the bridge that failed in Minneapolis. Um, we had a similar bridge in uh, Connecticut that we went up and we scanned and modeled uh, to help them because the bridge is 150 feet in the air. And they were going to have to raise up about 100 tons of steel to reinforce and create safety mechanisms in order to assure that that bridge was not going to exhibit or, or have the same catastrophic failure. And uh, the tolerances for that steel to be hoisted up in place were very small. And so um, the safest way to measure, to get those measurements and to begin that work was from the ground. And uh, so we were able to to do all the work that we had to from the safe from a safe position on the ground, uh, get the measurements 150 feet in the air, and um, and they were able to hoist the steel up without a problem, and that was pretty impressive. So, what other sort of applications have you used, sort of like three scanning and three imaging technologies for? So the, the normal applications. Or, you know, somebody's got a facility or a building 
that's about to undergo a major renovation or addition or historic preservation. And documentation flat out disappears over time. It just, uh, you know, whatever the reason. Um, or, uh, you know, what a lot of people want to call record drawings, uh, they're not record drawings. They're not as, you know, true as built. They're design intent drawings by the architects and the engineers or the interns who actually drew them and didn't know necessarily what they, you know, were trying to draw. And by design intent drawings, I'm fully implying that, you know, the contractor, when he gets out there, for good reason or bad, he often has to make changes. And um, it might be the owner's decision, it might be the contractor's decision, it might be because, you know, the architect the or the design team drew it wrong, you know, or didn't put enough information in, whatever the reason, um, those drawings don't truly reflect what is existing in reality. And so um, it's much faster, much more accurate, and you'll experience a lot less change orders if you just scan the building. And what scanning the building also does, the other added benefit is that it takes all the information that's on the, not just the architectural drawings, but the structural drawings or the mechanical, the electrical, the plumbing drawings. There's, there's, you know, when you look at a building of any particular size, it's a thick document, a little Bible of information. And, uh, and inevitably, even if you have some of the drawings, you, it's incredibly rare that everything was kept or everything was truly documented after the construction to make a true as-built. And so in a 3D scan, it puts all that information in one spot right there where it's easy to get to. And, and so you see where the diffusers are in the ceiling along with the lights. And you see, you know, what the architectural cove and moldings are um, all in one spot as opposed to having to flip through, you know, just file after file and, and page after page of documentation and going through old PDFs or JPEGs or photos. It's, it's just, it, it truly is the most efficient way to get things done right. Now, there's two things that I'm kind of picking up that I find very interesting, and they're both related to communication. Because one of the things, you know, I've kind of noticed if you look at, say, something like a company like Esri and a lot of the events that they've done, you know, when we are talking now in 2015, is there's this notion of geo-ICT, so geographical information and communication technologies. And I very much see laser scanning or anything like that. It's a highly visual tool, and I think a strong point of a lot of workflows now is related to the fact that it communicates as much as you're able to create a metric accurate image of a scene and a point in time and I think another interesting thing that's coming out from you is the fact that architects and architecture as an industry there's kind of a language to it the way in which you dissect buildings and dissect scenes totally there's a a language to it so I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about that because I think it's really really interesting yeah it's I mean it really is a science of dissecting the building um you know often i like to call us the radiologist of architecture 
you know, as far as uh, uh, we can, we're not necessarily seeing through the surfaces, but through our knowledge of um, the history of construction and the dimensions that we get out of the scanning, we can often tell a lot of things about what's happening in a building and, um, and what's happening with, you know, whether or not water's infiltrating and, and causing things to bulge. A point that you were making earlier was the idea of, you know, in the world of design right now, we're seeing two major camps really develop. And, you know, for there's been a long history of GIS. And then there's been this new developing thing called BIM. And both of them are essentially databases. They're, they're very robust databases. And BIM is, you know, it's building information modeling. It's, you know, uh, trying to document the building uh, inside and out, and it's trying to push its way further and further out to where it, you know, it can do not just one building but whole campuses. But to be honest, it fails when it tries to do a whole campus in one file. And GIS is something that's designed to do campuses and designed to do, you know, very large areas, and it's trying to work its way further and further into a building. And, um, and the one tool that they both use well is 3D scanning and LiDAR. Um, it applies to both of them, and it's, it's helping make that visual crossing over. But it'll be interesting to see, you know, the separation of the two databases and how those tool mer- tools merge together. We're still seeing that right now as more BIM uh, packages adopt GIS tool sets and GIS tries to adopt, you know, BIM tool sets. And so uh, it's a it's a very cool moment in this technology and that we're going through. Okay, so there's an interesting sort of, you know, talking about the tensions or, I don't know, maybe the changing landscape of the market that you and I sort of deal in on a regular basis is, I see an interesting analogy there between this struggle of like BIM and GIS and you know connecting the building with its outside context with sort of like 3D imaging in general and things like UAVs and you know photogrammetry structure for motion and stuff like that oh, so yeah. I was wondering yeah if you could give me your opinion on that sort of stuff from you know your application of what you do well it, you know uh, photogrammetry has come such a long way and especially in the last couple of years um, and it's really cool it um, it gives you the the something that looks the same as far as you know you can get three dimensional point cloud data out of both uh, photogrammetry or taking from using a camera to go around you know a site and um, if it's attached to a drone or a person walking around and um, versus, you know, with a, a laser scanner. The difference is, is that photogrammetry has certain things that, uh, certain weaknesses still. Um, it is light dependent. So, you know, it's very difficult to do photogrammetry in the dark. Um, and the more contrast, the better. Um, it also... It can be easy to get the scale off. So the way I like to put it is, you know, you can depend 
on modern photogrammetry, if you're trying to do, say, a whole exterior of a giant building, you can get the accuracy and you can feel fairly confident that you're going to get it to at least to within at least a meter. And uh, with LiDAR, it's probably within millimeters. So if you're doing uh, a presentation to a board and, you know, you're just trying to talk about campus planning and it looks right, if it looks right, it is right, then photogrammetry is much less expensive. It's much faster in some ways. It's easier. It's the way to go. But if you're placing steel or, you know, you're going to go through a, a, a process where, you know, there's going to be an extremely, um, there's a lot of resources or a lot of money at stake and it needs to be as precise as possible, then you should probably be using a laser. It's worth the extra money and it's worth the extra time to make sure and plan ahead in order to get that right. And that's, you know, um, I think that's really the big difference. One of the conversations I've had with other people recently about things like photogrammetry, and, you know, and it ties in with conversations that you and I have had in the past as well. I think particularly with 3D imaging tools at the moment in general, or, you know, this idea of being able to document a scene to a level of detail where you now get this, you know, this as-built relationship with the as-designed plans and seeing the difference between the two is all about checks and measures. You know, the one thing I find interesting at this point in time is anyone can create a 3D image, but it's all about what do you want from it. And metric accuracy is a big thing about that. Yeah. So yeah. I guess my question is, what would you see as the, the checks and balances of what you do? And a good analogy that I've heard is my friend went into a knife making shop and he was asking the guy about how he keeps the blade to a point where it's going to remain sharp or it's going to be able to cut through things. And the guy's response was, because I'm constantly checking the process yeah. that I'm doing. Yeah. I was wondering if we could talk more about that. Yeah, I, I, well, first off, when you talk about accuracy, my favorite person in the world who's ever, you know, discusses Joseph Chumley of Lockheed Martin once said, when it comes to accuracy, the first thing you have to understand is there is no such thing as accurate. Yeah, and, absolutely. Yep. And uh, you can always be more precise. And so it really is, you know, to what level of accuracy do you actually need? And once you identify what your requirements are for accuracy, and, and a lot of people, you know, they go way overboard. You know, their first reaction, their knee-jerk reaction is, it's got to be perfect. Well, there, there is no such thing as perfect. You can always be more perfect. And so, therefore, you're not. And so, but once you seriously identify, you know, how accurate can the craftsman be who's going to be out there on the site putting things together, then, you know, and the constraints that you're held to, then you can pick the right tool. Then you can, you know, you can say, okay, this is the tool that we need, and this is the budget we need for it. Then you can move forward. Okay, I, and I guess that sort of, it feeds into this notion of precision versus accuracy and the difference between the two. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's, uh, you know, 
uh, a lot of people wring their hands over, you know, it must be as precise as possible. And, uh, and you know, the laser manufacturers, they all promise, you know, it'll be within two mils. And, um, uh, but what, honestly, it's not within two mils. Um, if you do one scan on its own with no other process, yes, you might get in the perfect condition, you're going to get two mils. If the scanner runs right, if everything's right, um, there's no noise, no artifacting, you're, you'll get that two mils of accuracy, just as promised by the manufacturer. But that's not the end of the process. There's always more than one setup usually. Um, it's very rare that you only do one. And then you've got to register multiple things together. So multiple setups for LiDAR, you've got a multiple register, one setup to another, and there's the opportunity for a little bit of error or a little bit of uh, wiggle. And the more of those you put together, the more tolerance you're going to need. And then also taking the scans, and the same is true with photogrammetry, you know, the more images you try to stitch together, the more likely that you're going to introduce some amount of tolerance, some amount of flexibility. Um, or the fewer, you know, you might be able to increase the accuracy if you add the right photos. But then you take whatever point cloud, however you got it, into some sort of modeling package is typically the next stage. And when you take it into that modeling package, rarely do you just connect the dots. It's usually an averaging of a surface. And so there's a certain amount of inaccuracy that's introduced. And then there's the question of many architects and engineers, um, their CAD packages don't want the walls to be leaning in order to give you a dimension. The dimension tools won't work if they're leaning. But in reality, very few walls in the world are actually plumb. That's, you know, um, after the, the wall is put up, um, it might have been installed just a little to the left or a little to the right, leaning. And or over time, things sag. Things, you know, things warp. And so in the programs, we often, the architects and engineers, just being straight across is going to be good enough. And so in every step, my point is, in every step of the process, you have the opportunity to add a certain amount of tolerance of inaccuracy. And so at the end of the day, when you get to the very end, even if you've got the most precise measuring device in the world, when you get down to the final product, chances are it wasn't that initial you know, precision. And so that's, that's the conversation that's really hard to have. Okay. And I think another interesting direction to take that in is one of the things that I found interesting, you know, we're talking about this in 2015. So, you know, having worked with this technology for the last 10 years and having come into it from a non-traditional survey workflow, um, you know, for me, it was obviously heritage preservation. It's interesting to see how it's increasingly difficult to put people that had otherwise disconnected skill sets into boxes anymore. <laughs> yeah. Would you agree with that statement? Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, it's, um, 
Well, I, I think, you know, I think there's a certain amount of generalization in the work sets that, that has to happen as far as having the team understand the entire process is very helpful. But then the most efficient thing you can do um, at times is try to, you know, put people in, okay, you do the structural, you do the mechanical, you do the electrical, and you do the doors or windows or the trees outside. You know, have somebody who can become very knowledgeable about that one part. And uh, But at the same time, it's, it's good to let people, they've got to grow the whole process. They've got to, you know, they've got to continue to understand in order to become the absolute master of any one particular part, you have to also master the understanding of the rest and as far as, as best you can. And um, um, the better your understanding of the whole process, the more you can uh, really hone that edge of the knife. You can really hone that edge of the experience uh, to become finer and finer. So I guess in a way, if you were to look at things, you know, say like a, a factory model, it's knowing where you are in the production cycle and where you fit within that production cycle. Yeah. Yeah, but if you, you know, if you only train a person to turn a bolt, mm. you know, um, if you only train a person how to draw one particular thing, um, their usefulness is very limited. Um, and their ability to tell you anything other than lefty-loosey, righty-tighty, okay, that's, you know, okay, that's that's very it's it's not it's not the best way to keep people engaged and when people are engaged they're very productive okay but if people understand the process they really understand what's trying to to happen and then really focus in on you know if i make this bolt just tight enough not not totally tightened down where they can be tightened a little more later, then it'll make everything else that everybody else has to do easier to put their pieces on, you know, and then I can tighten it down at, at the point at the end, then boom, you've got something that's, it becomes a better product. It becomes better. You know, the whole process becomes better and they're engaged. They're thinking about the entire process and they're 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 enjoying their work, and when people enjoy their work, they inevitably become successful. So, do you think we're we're reaching a stage where technologies are able to sort of augment what the best parts of what we're able to do? Uh, absolutely. And and when you say the word augment, I immediately want to jump into augmented reality. I mean, because I think that's the cool, you know, next wave of where we're we're growing into where things everything starts becoming augmented by technology so uh you know the idea that we can uh begin to overlay all the smart systems uh that we're seeing on the computer as we start to bring that out into you know and be able to visualize it with like whether it's you know Google Glass 
or a pad, you know, like a, a tablet with a camera that will take the background of what you're looking at. You know, it'll use the camera view and then lay over, you know, intelligent information or models over reality. That sort of augmented reality is just, uh, it really will take our all of our professions. It doesn't matter what your profession is. It will give you more information and improve the, the professional process. Okay, so that was the digital musings of Larry Kleinkemper. I found interviewing Larry a very enjoyable process in every aspect of it, from interviewing him at a conference where we were both exhausted to also editing over his stuff a little bit later on and listening to what he had to say in a little bit more detail. Um, it was very interesting. Larry is certainly a very human being and also a very balanced person as well. So it's just it's kind of cool always meeting up with him and hanging out. Anyway, thank you for listening. Um, very enjoyable podcast. Hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed doing it. I look forward to giving you more in the future. The Remotely Interested podcast is listener supported. If you would like to advertise on the show, contact me at contact at remotely-interested.com. Also, why not spread the word on social media, Facebook, Twitter, whatever you want to do, make people aware of the podcast. do my intro where uh you call me laser larry i can call you laser larry <laughs> <laughs>